This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. As we are sitting here today, and, and I think it's, it's, it's actually prescient that I'm speaking after the panel on um, migration and, and the discussion on the, the recent travel ban, additional countries that have been added to that. And so uh, in addition to the six countries that this administration has added to the list of uh, those in the Muslim ban, you might have also seen that uh, the administration has declared a public health emergency in the U.S. and has also uh, said that those who have spent, I think, um, two weeks or so in, in China are, are going to be uh, banned um, from entering the country. So the travel ban um, also now extends to those who may have uh, the risk of coronavirus. And so I wanted to invoke that in this space because I think the uh, way that we conceive of public health risk and public health uh, sort of crises um, is something that is especially racialized. And so uh, at this very moment um, where the anxiety around the coronavirus is at its um, its apex, we have a number of countries closing borders. We have a number of airlines who have uh, stopped and canceled flights. A number of companies have ceased operations um, in China. Individuals that present as Asian are being racially profiled. Uh, we have kids being taunted and shamed in schools. Um, and then increasing restrictions on uh, the freedom of movement of uh, Chinese people or people who's at, who present as Chinese. Um, and the, the, there's the sense that um, the disease is tied to, at least I want to invoke the sense that the disease is tied to sort of longstanding historical narratives of, um, in this particular instance, uh, quote unquote orientals as diseased or, or, or dirty, um, and that uh, that is tied to a larger history and legacy of peoples that reside in the global south as being diseased and inferior. Um, and so this, this mass hysteria surrounding the coronavirus, I think, um, in this moment, has to be put in the context with um, sort of what the reality is, right? And so the reality is that this virus um, has a mortality rate of 2%, um, which is about a little bit more than uh, the seasonal flu uh, that kills globally 400,000 people. Uh, the seasonal flu um, has a mortality rate of a little less than 1%. Um, and so I, I, I think that the coronavirus um, sort of vividly illustrates uh, the ways in which um, diseases function and diseases can be conflated and racialized uh, and can, can further racial po- politics of racial exclusion, politics of racial subordination. And uh, so right now it's the coronavirus. Um, not that long ago it was Ebola. Not that long ago before then it was SARS. And not that long, long ago it was also um, Zika. And so the, the central claim in the piece that I make um, or I'm making and, and, and developing as things are changing is that um, global actors are responding to diseases um, in part based on the racial populations that um, are impacted by those diseases. And I should say, uh, you know, nothing makes a one particular uh, group that has been racialized as X um, more susceptible to Ebola or more susceptible to coronavirus or anything like that. But whatever the, the case, uh, diseases come to be socially racialized um, and that that racialization process uh, impacts uh, how global actors are responding to diseases um, and what the interventions are that are available um, 
at the level of uh, the international uh, uh, system. And so the project is um, tying this, what I term the racial valuation of diseases um, to a historical narrative that's rooted in and based on um, the ways in which race as a construct was created to um, other uh, and differentiate peoples. Um, and so the grouping of, of people into races um, was, um, as in the, in the previous panel, uh, drawing on the work of Cedric Robinson and the like, uh, to differentiate, but to also to further the uh, colonial and slavery and imperial project. Um, and part of that project, I don't want to leave out, is also uh, playing on tropes of scientific racism. So scientific racism then created actually sort of objective verification of this inferiority, right? So it's not just that there's a popular sense that these people are inferior, but we also have scientific theory or pseudoscientific theory to buttress um, this reality of, of inferiority. And so that is going to justify treating people of color, and particularly black people, as um, something other than human. And in fact, we have uh, theories that support, um, scientific theories, that, at least at the time, that support uh, the idea that those of African descent are you know, a completely different, um, you know, they're not human, they're com uh, completely different species. Um, and so there is a way in which race and the racialization process and the creation of and, and putting and, and categorization of people into distinct racial groups has been also tied to sort of the ways in which disease has functioned. And so I, I um, in this piece, am talking about the, the ways in which uh, diseases have been racialized to further uh, racial subordination. And to do that, I've been um, playing with this concept of, of, of racial valuation. And I use that concept... Um, to try to help explain what is happening you know, in this current moment, but also how we can think about uh, the other responses to um, diseases in, in, the global health, um, in the global health space. And so just to articulate um, the concept of racial valuation very quickly, um, in the sociological literature, racial valuation is defined as the value placed on individuals or groups, that's based on cognitive biases or stereotypes, um, and it relates directly to people's position in the um, racial hierarchy. And in, in the project, I am defining uh, racial valuation as uh, the structural, hierarchical, and socially consequential valuation of racial groups. And um, so that racial valuation encompasses the perceived sum of the intrinsic value that particular groups have as a result of uh, their race. And so that um, racial valuation um, of different groups is informed by the project of scientific racism, uh, and it comes with legal um, and social uh, results, drawing also on the work of, of course, um, Cheryl Harris and her work on, on whiteness and property, uh, whiteness as property, excuse me, um, there is a way in which the proximity to whiteness or the closeness to whiteness um, places you higher in, in the valuation system and uh, sort of the further away you are from whiteness, the less um, value is placed on one's life. And so that, uh, as a historical matter, functioned transnationally and globally. And so racialized societies created um, structures, uh, racial social structures within the societies, and then that project was replicated uh, globally through the project of colonialis colonialism. And in the project, I argue that uh, just because there is sort of the def um, this anti-colonial movement and, and decolonization uh, did not disturb uh, the underlying hierarchies that were existing globally, 
uh, and it also uh, created space for um, sort of a mutually constitutive relationship between uh, the racialized structures that were created through racial violation, racial valuation, and individual society and laws. And so we see um, the promulgation of racial valuation norms up until today. Uh, and we see that in the space of, of global health and in, in, in the space of diseases and uh, the ways in which um, the historical uh, conceptions of, of race and race tying race to disease uh, continue to emanate today, even though there is uh, a, an attempt, I think, to distance oneself from sort of blatant scientific racism and other things like that. Uh, the argument that I'm making in the piece is that there are vestiges of that that are remnant um, today and that it informs public health interventions. It informs uh, how we respond to disease burdens. It informs um, how diseases come to be naturalized or seen as inevitable because, you know, those people have been diseased since however long, time immemorial. Uh, and so um, that uh, framework then becomes illustrative and helpful for thinking about uh, how material conditions in health are distributed and um, how we might uh, fashion societal responses differently, taking into account um, this racial evaluation of diseases. And so I just wanted to highlight two examples uh, because I don't have uh, too much time, uh, but one is uh, surrounding the recent uh, Zika epidemic. Um, and so in 2016, uh, the New York uh, City Department of Health conducted aerial spraying in Manhattan above 155th Street. Um, so Zika, for those of you who don't know, is, is spread primarily through mosquitoes. And so this aerial spraying above 155th Street, if you're not familiar with New York, uh, that coincided with Washington Heights and um, the Inwood neighborhoods in New York. And those neighborhoods tend to be uh, predominantly Latinx. And so um, it presented the illusion that uh, spraying Latinx people is somehow going to um, contain the Zika virus, right? Um, not the not that you need to contain um, the mosquitoes, but it's the people themselves, right? And and also too, as if the mosquitoes are only congregating in the neighborhoods of, of Washington Heights and and um, and Inwood, right? They're not going below uh, below that below that racial line. But so, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous, but it's also I mean, it's also sad, right? It's 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 drawing on long-standing historical practices that have. Uh, quarantined and um, subjected people of color to different sets of public health interventions because of uh, the ways in which um, diseases become become racialized and become associated with particular groups. And so that's one instance that I uh, talk about in the piece. The other instance that I would highlight, too, as an example of this is um, the Ebola um, epidemic in 2016, not, not the, 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 although the most recent one conjures that up as well, um, but the 2014-2015 West African Ebola epidemic really set off um, sort of fears of racial contagion in the U.S. Um, children of um, African immigrants in Dallas were taunted as Ebola kids. Uh, two students from Rwanda um, were sent home from a New Jersey elementary school. Uh, for those of you who didn't major in geography, Rwanda is you know, on the complete opposite side of uh, the continent of Africa. Um, a Texas college sent out uh, letters denying admission to some students from Nigeria, even though the World Health Organization had uh, proclaimed uh, Nigeria Ebola-free at that time. Um, and there are a host of other cases uh, where uh, you see 
Ebola being racialized as black, um, as emanating from this dark continent, reviving historical images of uh, these quote-unquote savage bodies, these unruly bodies, these bodies that cannot be contained, um, and these bodies that we need to protect ourselves from. And we see that playing out, I think, in large part to with what's happening right now with the coronavirus, right? There's a sense that we need to contain the threat from China. This threat is not one that's just political and economic. It's also one that's embodied in the very bodies of people who are Chinese. Uh, and so we need to put restrictions on them and their movement and their freedom uh, in order to contain this, this threat. Uh, and so there's a way in which racialized fears really can um, galvanize public um, action and public um, uh, movement in the space of global health uh, within, uh, I think, yesterday, the World Health Organization declared a public health emergency of international concern. Uh, like I said, the U.S. has already said that this is a public health uh, emergency within within this country, even though, like I said at the outset, the seasonal flu kills more people globally, kills more people within the U.S. than, uh, than the coronavirus. And so I think it's important to interrogate race and the role that race is playing and the valuation attached to particular groups um, that are, are, are seen as barriers or carriers of disease and how that's informing um, transnational and global responses. And so one of the things I'm hoping to do um, in this project is to de develop, you know, what are the theoretical um, and legal implications of this? Uh, and how do we, um, is there a way to change um, uh, sort of the politics of fear, the politics of, of, of fear of racial contagion in terms of determining um, global public response to diseases, right? Because there's a way in which, in some sense, you might think that, well, this is good, it draws attention and, and, and the like, but in, in another sense, it also instrumentalizes um, the livelihood of people of color, right? Because now we only care about a disease if, it, if it's going to implicate uh, people in the global north, right? So if um, white people are somehow implicated by disease, then that's going to raise its valuation uh, publicly in, in, in the global health uh, regime, and so that means that we need more resources uh, to dedicate to that. And so the problem with that is that it tends to um, focus on disease-specific interventions internationally that are focused around crises. And so we need to frame diseases as security threats if we want to get money. Um, but if the disease uh, is not phrased as a um, security threat, it could still be very harmful, right? Um, millions of people could still be dying of the thing. But because we don't conceive of it as a threat, because it's not racialized, maybe that's not going to draw enough um, public funding uh, resources and, and space for, for intervention. And then that also undermines um, building actually robust public health systems to try to deal with, to actually deal with, um, with, with threats. And then there is this uh, emergence, emergence of emergencification, securitization that is happening in the space that we also see happening in other spaces that we've talked about, and migration is, is one of them as well, um, which um, goes against, I think, or undermines sort of um, larger public health uh, objectives. And so there are a number of, of problems with uh, the way in which race is functioning. And so this project is trying to draw attention to um, the influence of race in global health, which I think is this place where race has been rendered uh, semi-invisible. Um, and so the, the work of this project is to render that um, visible. But I also think the framework um, in the piece has a use for other areas of, of law and policy and um, thinking through the ways in which uh, this project um, and all of our work can, can help to further anti-subordination. And my time is up. So thank you. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
So I, too, would like to add my voice. Uh, well, first, congratulations. <laughs> add my voice of thanks to the Law Review uh, team uh, for organizing this fabulous event and Asla Tendai for uh, your leadership and guidance uh, through this. Um, it's a delight to be back and to be able to continue this conversation. And I'm continuing it with a paper that emerges actually out of a course. And that course was the Transnational Futures of International Labor Law that I taught last year uh, with guest speakers from uh, around the world to celebrate or commemorate and think critically about the International Labor Organization uh, on its centenary. Uh, and so my co-author is a student from that course, Alice Duquesnoy, who is in France now and unfortunately couldn't be with us. But uh, this uh, emerges out of engagements with the early history of the ILO and the way in which its own self-concept of labor and slavery as connected, how that self-concept has been sidelined forgotten, even as the history of the institution is being retold. And so part of the work I've been doing in a broader project is around the archives of the ILO, of the League of Nations, looking into the ways in which uh, slavery was conceptualized, who the actors were who entered into the various commissions to establish the first slavery convention, including Dante's Belgard, who had a slightly different vision coming from Haiti uh, than many of the uh, colonial administrators who ultimately found themselves on the second commission that essentially erased race from the definition in the slavery convention. The ILO, the early uh, institution around this, actually tried to claim back the responsibility to engage with slavery, arguing that it was part of its own trajectory of addressing labor standards, of addressing labor issues, but that was not heard as a framing and really the narrative that the ILO had propelled up until that point was our institution emerges out of an understanding of the Industrial Revolution as the starting point. So erasing that very present understanding of slavery as central to the emergence of capitalism. So Eric Williams and then the abundance of literature flowing through now that frames our understanding that way. The ILO did not claim that vision at that time and came to this belatedly. And then when it stepped in to reclaim what was left, the work on forced labor as part of the native labor mandate Rather than follow W.E.B. Du Bois's uh, plea to interrogate the conditions of uh, the uh, non-white, if you will, the black world, uh, racialized world, colonized world, of course, the focus became a further othering of the whole category of 
the native uh, labor problem. Some of the archives actually still say, though, colored labor, and you see it in the framing around a concern that was actually more expansive, more capacious than uh, the uh, mandate to deal with colonized subjects uh, would allow. So they were looking, uh, despite uh, their mandate at China, at, uh, 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 of course, Ethiopia. Uh, And the framing uh, there enabled incursions uh, that would otherwise have fallen beyond. So a longer story. And part of telling that story through labor and through an institution that has all but fallen off the map in terms of international labor law, the ILO, is to reclaim an understanding of the rootedness of slavery, of indigeneity in international law through the framings that were actively constructed to maintain a colonial division of labor just at the same time as one was extending a protective, increasingly welfare statist vision of labor in the global north. Uh, So the specific slice of this project that the paper represents is an engagement uh, with uh, the way in which our framing of slavery focuses on forgetting the past. So we've inherited a way of speaking about slavery that, of course, accentuates property and ownership, but that loses connection to centuries-long legalized processes of racialization that the literature on racial capitalism centers. We lose the Black Atlantic, and much has been said already today about, of course, Cedric Robinson's vision that takes us through a framing of racialization uh, that challenges uh, classic Marxist visions of uh, the disjuncture between feudalism and the emergence of capitalism that dislodges the easy assumption um, that has prevailed between uh, liberal democracy and capitalism and situates us uh, firmly uh, within the terrain uh, of uh, divided terrain, as Stuart Hall would say, as the way in which capitalism advances. Uh, But uh, the focus on so-called modern slavery or contemporary forms of slavery allows us to think about the work that's operated when slavery itself loses its history. The afterlife of slavery, 
the Black Atlantic is no longer part of the conversation. It literally falls off the map. And as I was surveying the archival materials as uh, the new 1926 slavery convention was being um, implemented, uh, countries were polled. And so countries like my own, Canada, said things like, we never had slavery, <laughs> and slavery's not on the books. Others simply had to answer, we have laws against slavery, and that disappeared. Right. Uh, but slavery became the terrain through which we constructed the illiberal other. Right. So detailed ethnographic anthropological uh, studies of Ethiopia uh, were the order of the day. Uh, and they framed how we could at once retain active colonialism uh, and retain the moral authority to claim to investigate the slavery <coughs> existing elsewhere. Right. I would suggest that that same enactment continues to operate now in the discourse of modern slavery to the extent that it uh, erases the legacies uh, of transatlantic slavery. It turns its eyes resolutely away from mass incarceration. And its gaze instead is on women and children, Its gaze is on to the extent that it looks at chains, value chains, uh, in transnational uh, uh, movements of capital. It places attention on that narrowest of borders that is the most egregious forms of exploitation in enterprises and leaves the broader displacement of persons, management within uh, contexts where uh, the post-colonial state has largely had to step out uh, to leave the governance to the multinational enterprises whose GDP is often larger than the states in which they operate. Most of that is lost. So the positive labor vision is lost. My paper is a fairly doctrinal one, despite my presentation of it here. It takes you through a fairly close uh, analysis of how the ILO's specialized uh, uh, supervisory mechanism that has been in place since 1926 looks at the application of the narrower forced labor conventions including one that the ILO that the US actually ratified 
the Forced Labor Convention number 105. That convention speaks specifically to racialization, and for reasons that I still can't figure out, the U.S. considered when it ratified in the 1990s that that wouldn't really affect it. It has avoided the convention uh, from the ILO on forced labor that turns its attention or its lens back onto public and private prisons and the use of forced labor in those contexts because of the 13th Amendment interpretation that all but, well, that does permit slavery uh, in uh, prisons or slave labor in prisons. Uh, But Convention 105 was ratified and the supervisory body has turned its attention to mass incarceration and the racialization of this. And it's done it um, in its habitual, uh, gentle, incremental, but unmistakable way. And the response has been to introduce uh, an alternative frame. So rather than meeting the concerns around uh, disproportionate, uh, uh, grossly disproportionate representation of African Americans in prisons, uh, the U.S. response has been to turn to trafficking, to its trafficking legislation, uh, to its work to act in its police capacity to basically uh, redress uh, this harm, women and children. Again, the, so that kind of focus and outward looking what we are doing in the world. Um, whereas the Committee of Experts has, it hasn't disregarded that. It has acknowledged that as part of the panoply of considerations that fall under the forced labor instruments, but has kept attention on mass incarceration and the need to redress this. And so I raise this as one of those singular examples where you've actually got relatively robust interrogation of state action in relation to uh, a legacy of slavery uh, that is all but forgotten in the framing of what international labor law is about. Uh, And uh, uh, in uh, much of the, my time is up, but I'll just mention much of the uh, literature around in particular African-American struggle uh, for recognition uh, of a broader panoply of human rights in the international context is focused on the post-Second World War period um, and has emphasized the UN Charter and the ensuing uh, instruments. Uh, attention to that earlier period and that earlier moment of internationalization and engagement and contestation about the kind of vision we should have uh, for framing Uh, involvement uh, flows through this kind of discussion and this kind of normative framework that is operating still 
um, when Carol Anderson uh, makes uh, the claim that Eyes on the Prize um, would have um, entailed a vision that is equality-seeking and human rights-seeking, I think some of the earlier contestation actually suggests that the prize was deeper still and it was a firm understanding of what it would take to decolonize and to rethink um, what it meant to repair slavery. Thanks. Um, well, thank you, and I'm very aware that I'm the very last person speaking, so uh, I won't pontificate for too long, but thanks so much to the Law Review editors and Tendai and Esla for including me on this program and allowing me to comment on these two amazing papers. So, um, you know, they're, they're two pretty distinct projects in that one is about labor and one is about health, but I would say that the, the common thread among them is really thinking about how racial ideologies travel and morph as they make their way through international institutions, as they land in national context, um, as Vasuki said, as they become their, they take their own form and shape as they, in those national contexts. Um, you know, they're also both projects that are critiques of the left um, and progressive uh, communities of the world, I would say. You have on one hand, well, the ILO, not so much necessarily with its tripartite structure, but, you know, the... Um, the idea that you know something about the anti-trafficking discourse, something about labor rights, um, in Matiange's story, something about global health advocates who all think they're doing a really good thing, and yet um, the discourse of the fields itself, both in labor and health, are basically implicated in maintaining racial orders. Um, so something you said in your paper, that, Adele, that I thought was, ama- uh, was so interesting was that racial disparities, the language of racial disparities, actually mutes our ability to talk about racism. Um, uh, and again, you know, the, the idea of trafficking, the idea of modern-day slavery um, itself is a distraction from some of the larger um, stories that need to be told and um, in which our current work needs to be situated in. And Matiange, um, how racial valuation is buried in the logics of global public health and in the response to epidemics. So I took... Um, I took the idea that I should respond to them very specifically, pretty seriously. So I have a couple really specific comments and questions that came to me as I was reading the papers, and I hope um, that um, they're helpful to you. Um, Matiange, I, you know, I, 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 we, Matiange and I all often end up in health law spaces together, and I should just say that she's really doing a lot of hard work um, as a junior person especially, well, now, now senior, um, but um, to make sure that everyone remembers that we need to be talking about race in the context of health and um, disease in particular. There's a lot of conversation in the health law world about racial disparities. Um, again, coming back to your invocation about how racial disparities um, actually mask some of the language of racism, but, um, but you know, just to put on the table that a lot of this work is really new and really innovative, and, um, and I, I appreciate what you're doing. Um, I, one of the things I thought when I was reading your article, maybe as someone who feels um, protective of you, um, is that, um, uh, is that uh, I wondered what the critique would be from a sort of more conservative or more mainstream law and economics perspective. And I, I think I partly was thinking about this because um, 
I just finished reading um, Richard Posner and Thomas Phillipson's book, Private Choices in Public Health, The AIDS Epidemic and Economic Perspective, which I highly recommend if you want to be annoyed for a few days. And, um, you know, basically, um, uh, I wonder, you know, what the economic rationales are that have fallen out of your analysis um, and, you know, what they are hanging around in the background um, that have actually been coded in the language we use in global public health. So burdens of disease, um, quality-adjusted life years, disability-adjusted life years, which are obviously indicators of, you know, people's ability to work um, and their contribution to GDP. Um, you know, what is the role of race? Um, you know, in, in, their, in their analysis in um, uh, uh, private choices in public health, they're really interested in why people make the decisions they make to have risky sex. And for them, risky sex is essentially the outcome of a utility calculation where we subtract the costs um, uh, of, of risky sex from the benefits of risky sex um, and uh, then act on that accordingly. <laughs> um, now, every, um, uh, every uh, while they're focused on these acts of risky sex, what they're actually also interested in is how the government should be regulating the epidemic and these specific individual private acts. And they conclude in their book that nearly every public intervention in the context of AIDS, whether it's voluntary HIV testing or sex education, um, uh, the government should not intervene except in the criminalization of HIV. And race, um, in the transmission of HIV, and race becomes really important to their analysis. They have this idea that, um, you know, because the markets of black men and women um, are small um, and the actual ratios are relative to one another, um, this drives people's utility calculations and decreases the ability of black women, for example, to bargain for sex, bargain for condom use in sex, um, and explains in their minds the higher rates of HIV in the black community. Um, now, a lot of this kind of logic gets coded. They, in their papers, they thank the World Bank. They're workshopping their papers at the World Bank. It becomes part of the global public health response. Um, you know, st the structural adjustment programs that we see, the individual responsibility narratives that rise, the imprint um, left by cost-effectiveness analysis, um, you know, again, like uh, in, global in calculating global disease burdens, disability-adjusted life years. You know, I'm just wondering how your story fits into that story, like how, those, how you're in conversation with that conversation, um, which is also in some ways about race. Um, they make it explicitly about race, and um, pro they, they've been very successful. That law and economics perspective has been very successful in... Um, really becoming the main way in which we should think about the global health response. Um, so I also was interested in this idea of law as, you know, we've talked about law as a technology, of race as a technology um, all day today. And, you know, in, in the paper, there's so much stuff going on with law. So law is a technology of development. Law is a technology, you could say law is a technology of war. Law is a technology of disease control. And in each of these modes, the law seems to act differently. So how, when someone is constructed as a national security threat, for example, do the rules of uh, global health interventions change? So here, I, I, the example I, I'm a little bit obsessed with is the idea of polio in Pakistan, which, um, you know, um, is really a story about how um, the sort of national, the sort of war on terror undermined the entire public health infrastructure in Pakistan, allowing the, uh, and on the Pakistan-Afghanistan border, especially allowing polio to sort of spread. Um, and, uh, you know, it's all wrapped up in the, in trying to catch Osama bin Laden and this kind of, um, um, you know, and, and I really think, I wonder um, how you might be thinking about this in relation to 
um, the broader toil literature, you know, how do we think about international legal orders as producing the structural inequalities in these different modes that they're in, development, war, um, how does empire and imperialism shift our notions of sickness, um, who deserves health care and who doesn't, and you know, how that is sort of a constantly moving line. Um, you have a lot in your paper about racial science, and um, racial science has come up a few times today, and I, I think um, there's a few ideas that are in, that's in the literature on the sociology of uh, medicine and race, which is interesting and hasn't really come up in the course of our conversation um, today, um, which is that, you know, in some ways, black bodies especially have always been treated as sort of different. But in many ways, and this comes up, Deidre Owen Cooper, uh, Cooper Owen shows this in her book on black women and gynecology, for example. You know, the fact that we were testing all of the new gynecological procedures on black women's bodies, um, you know, and... and um, uh, you know, people didn't have the choice to participate necessarily. She complicates that history quite a lot. But, you know, there's a certain way that this, there's a sameness assumption too, right? I mean, we're not going to extrapolate and generalize from a set of bodies that we actually think are truly different. So it's like this, rhetorically, we're all different, but actually when it comes to the, the practice of medicine and testing and clinical trials today, we're all the same. Um, um, and both Alondra Nelson and Steve Epstein um, and Alondra Nelson in her book, Body and Soul, about the Black Panthers, also discussed the way that social movement actors have actually mobilized ideas of racial difference to bring about distributional mm -hmm. shifts. So, for example, the Black Panthers specifically used sickle cell. Ruha Benjamin talks about this as well. You know, like this idea of advocating around sickle cell as a way to say we have a common blood project here. It's not just about identity. It's about... Um, so... Um, and, and, you know, and this, this racial, and just in a totally different context, not so much in the social movements context, but in the context of the uh, HPV vaccine rollout in India, um, the Indian government um, said also that, you know, one of the reasons why, um, you know, we need to think about the way the HPV vaccine is being rolled out and the populations that, that the HPV vaccine are, is being tested on is because racial groups are essentially distinct. So, you know, there's all these different ways in which in our contemporary mode, um, these, these ideas of racial difference are basically um, uh, brought up for good, for bad, um, but essentially to um, uh, deal with um, some of the distributional implications of, of, um, of the broader global health project. Um, as someone who writes on social movements, I was curious from your perspective who you think is doing the resistance in the, epi in the space of epidemics today. Um, and, you know, how do we, um, who, who are those people? You know, who were the people when Haitians were detained in Guantanamo in 1992? You know, who, who, who were resisting that? They were also, a lot of those people were in the global public health, um, are in that sort of global public health space. And what does that mean to you that, that they were there? Um, because, you know, there's a, little, there's a way that when you read your paper, you forget that there might have been another side or there might have been contestation. Um, and I'm just curious from your perspective, Maybe it's not good enough from your perspective, or maybe it's so small that it's not. But I just wanted to hear more. Um, and then, Adele, your uh, you know, knowledge and work on the ILO and labor is so beyond my um, scope. I hope I can say something helpful. Um, but there, I did have so many questions when I read your paper, and I didn't know if maybe that would help um, shape um, you know, where people might be picking up on you know, little points. Um, I, I, I didn't have a clear sense of why the 1930 convention that you mentioned excluded labor as a condition of, uh, of excluded um, uh, from the definition of forced labor 
um, labor that was a condition of conviction. And I really wanted the specific story around that. So who were the key government players? You mentioned someone when you were speaking now that, um, you know, um, uh, um, what were, and I was thinking about Devin's work here, but, you know, when the actors were sent off to the ILO, you know, how were their identities constructed? How were their identities constrained? I was also thinking about Tim Lovelace's work on um, uh, looking at how, you know, the civil, the connection between the civil rights and the, the civil rights actors who are essentially going to human rights institutions um, and, you know, how they were bringing their own racial projects to the human rights institutions and, there were, you know, how they were, uh, how they were basically constrained and hamstrung by the State Department's objectives and at the same time had their own ideas about how to bring racial shifts. Um, I, I was so taken by your idea about Tra- that what, what your arguments were around the trafficking discourse and how it's basically undermining our ability to, um, and this is less about your presentation, more about what you have in your paper, um, but how it was really undermining our ability to see prison labor and specific, specifically as, um, you know, and I couldn't get a sense for whether you wanted prison labor to be treated as slavery or if you were contesting the idea of slavery, but I thought the idea that somehow trafficking was aligning our ability to understand, I mean, that that it was such an effective tool, essentially, in not allowing us to understand what was going on in the prison labor context. Of course, I thought about um, all the feminist work on sex trafficking um, and the way, you know, it, the, the, um, how there's been so much feminist complicity um, in the justification for the rise of a criminalization approach, how it's a distraction from larger structural goals. Um, I thought that it might provide you some useful language for how the trafficking discourse does this work of alighting and hiding. And even in, in the sex trafficking context, making this prison situation worse because so many more people res- are in prison because of this sex trafficking, the push to end sex trafficking. Um, and, you know, in that sense, um, you know, the the way you do have these new technologies of governance, um, how trafficking itself has become this new imperial project um, with the U.S. government, as you said, at the heart of it, the indicators, the threats to humanitarian assistance, the carceral law reform projects that are all built into the rule of law project. Um, and, um, and I was curious, you know, if I were to transplant some of that uh, into your project, how we would how that would play out, you know, how would, we, how would we imagine prison labor in that context? And of course, this is all racialized, you know, um, this, this is very clearly developed in the literature on sex trafficking, um, where there's, you know, very clear ideas of who, who the victims are and who the juvenile delinquents are, and, um, and that's, of course, um, uh, plays out exactly as you'd expect with sort of young white women being seen as the ideal Victims and, and certainly in the context of compulsory labor in prisons, it's very hard to imagine the ability to kind of reconstruct that person as a victim of a broader system of sort of um, injustices in labor. Um, I also was wondering about your transnational approach because um, there's, you know, I was wondering how each specific person in prison as a laborer is being made, essentially. I'm thinking about Ian Hacking's work, you know, making up people. You know, how, how is each person made by the international institutions, by the domestic institutions? Um, um, you know, how are you seeing that actually working? Because as you mentioned in your paper, the U.S. government is quite resistant to the ILO. I mean, we have a very conservative legal regime when it comes to labor in general. 
Um, you know, how, how do you see some of these ideas about labor, labor actually traveling? You know, what circuits do they travel from the ILO into the United States? Why the ILO, you know? Um, why not U.S. labor law? Um, uh, and so I, I would just love to hear uh, more about that. And finally, um, corporations are almost entirely absent from your um, paper, and I'm, or employers are almost entirely absent. And it's really hard. You mentioned global value chains in your presentation. It seems really difficult to talk about prison labor without thinking about global value chains and the role of the corporation in particular. Yes. Um, uh, so I'm, I'm just, anyways, I just love to hear more. Thank you. Yeah. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.